0: Today on Against the Grain, what can our fantasies about space actually tell us about life on Earth? Fred Sharman discusses competing visions for long-term space occupancy over the last century and a half, many of them emanating from Russia and the United States even before the Cold War and now monopolized by billionaires like Elon Musk. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. For the last 150 years, the idea of living in outer space has captured the imaginations of many. But the visions of what life could be like there has varied, ranging from colonization and plunder to utopian ideas of equality and harmony. While some of these notions have appeared as science fiction, Others have come from the scientific establishment, although my guest says the line between the two is blurry. Fred Sharman teaches architecture and urban design at Morgan State University in Baltimore. His latest book is Space Forces, a Critical History of Life in Outer Space, which is published by Verso. Fred, how far off are we from living in outer space? How hospitable is space to human habitation?
1: Well, almost everything about space is is dangerous to humans and human bodies. Um, it's filled with radiation, cosmic radiation, and periodic sort of bursts of other even more deadly stuff from solar storms. It's of course a vacuum. There's no air there. We have to bring everything we need to breathe, everything we need to eat, everything we need to drink with us. Um, and there's no. Um, Variety and change on the scale that we we like to see on Earth. We don't have seasons, you know, in space in the same way. We don't have uh, morning, noon, and night. Uh, we don't have even gravity. You know, doesn't pull at us the same way that the gravity of Earth does. So everything about this environment is unfamiliar, and you know, frankly, can be a little scary and definitely deadly.
0: And yet, of course, that hasn't stopped people from attempting to explore space, either physically or in the mental landscape. And before we get into some of those visions, can you remind us how far off we are from actually living in outer space? Uh, Although there's much fanfare about space exploration, and as you note, there's much popularity for NASA in this country. But in terms of humans' success in, in venturing from this planet? How would you rate it so far?
1: Oh, I think if we're talking about humanity generally, and if if you know, we're using we to encompass the human species, I'd say we're doing pretty good. I mean, from where we're sitting in 2022, the International Space Station has been continuously occupied for over 20 years. So that means there's been At least a couple of humans in space for two decades now for pretty much the entirety of the 21st century and before that there were just many many sort of milestones that humans have ticked off over the past say you know 70 years since the advent of the space race so i'd say overall you know we're doing pretty well maybe not as terrifically well as some of the predictions from the middle of the 20th century would have had us by now but not so bad
0: we'll talk in detail about some of the visions but what would you say have if you were to characterize the main threads that have shaped the kind of notions that have appeared, especially in in two countries, which have been the central places for any conversation about exploring space, and that's Russia, later the Soviet Union, Russia again now, and the United States. How would you characterize the main currents that tend to shape the kinds of visions of space exploration that have predominated over the last century and a half.
1: Yeah, I think there's a, at least four main threads we can pull out that um, that we see sort of running continuously through this this century and a half old history that the the book documents. One is just you know creating a place for an indefinite expansion of of human life into you know a big a big amount of space volume and a, a deep amount of sort of future time. Um, so the Russian Cosmos uh, right at the beginning of the history of the idea that humans should live in space were interested in, in sort of indefinitely extending humanity um, in time and space and to go and live on other planets was part of that. Um, then there's the idea that we need to get out from under threats to you know, the human biological species. Um, we see so many extinctions in the past and we look into deep time. We see so many different ways that uh, that the world has ended, you know, for different species and different ecosystems on this planet in its, in its long, long, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of year long history. Um, you know, and then there's sort of national competition, which can range from uh, ideas about prestige and winning the space race, being the first American, the first person on the moon was American, which is really important to American identity in the 20th century. But that can, you know, blend sort of smoothly into military competition. There's a long history of talking about space as a sort of ultimate high ground from which you can not only surveil the activities of your enemy, but have a kind of um, ability to dominate them in military terms. You know, and I think it's it's also important to remember that, um, that we, you know, we humans, a lot, of, a lot of humans think about going to space because it's associated with this kind of ultimate adventure, exploration, and maybe with the the ability to imagine that we could find not only new worlds, but we could become new people, that new ways of, of social life and political life were possible in these other planets and these other worlds off of Earth.
0: Right. So it seems that then, on the one hand, much of the visions about life off Earth, uh, in outer space, really have to do with actually a critique of society on Earth and problem solving for the the problems of Earth um, by projecting out into space. And then there are other ones which are about thinking about ways to live differently. And, of course, those are not separate. And what you're arguing, and perhaps you could tell us a bit more about it, that we shouldn't look at any of these visions around outer space in a vacuum, that they are very much the product of the times and places that the ideas come out of.
1: Yeah, I was really lucky to be able to borrow um, with with permission, of course, a concept from um, anthropologist and sociologist Lisa Masseri, who talks about the idea of a planetary imagination as being a necessary component of how, how we think about other worlds. How humans think about other worlds is deeply um, sort of tied up with, with what we think about how the world we live in should be and how we imagine things that are possible. Um, and also the planetary mas- imagination is connected with um, sort of the question of what worlds are for in the first place. You know, why do we like, why do we like Earth? Of course, Earth sustains us and, and Earth, uh, Earth is our home, um, but we do so many things to Earth as a planet when we see it as just a set of material resources that sort of undermine, you know, the ability of it to provide for us as a home. So when we, extend, when, we, when we extend our ideas about how we should live into the future, and when we think about, okay, how can we create new worlds from scratch, the question of what we think worlds are for in the first place comes right to the forefront.
0: Let me ask you then about some of the earlier visions about outer space, which have to do with precisely what you mentioned, this idea of what What worlds are for? What kind of societies do we want to live in? And how do we see ourselves within the societies? Can you tell us about the Russian cosmos philosopher, Nikolai Fedorov, whose esoteric ideas were partially influenced by Thomas Malthus, who warned of catastrophic resource scarcity as the result of the population growth of the poor?
1: Yeah, Fedorov is a really interesting character, um, in the in the late nineteenth century in Russia, he was a librarian in Moscow and kind of a kind of an eccentric recluse, it seems, um, although records of his daily life are spotty coming down to us now. And he would he would write and he would release these pamphlets and the his ideas would be circulated by friends and followers. And one of the things that he was interested in asking himself and asking sort of society in general as far as you know his his audience could reach, was what what were we doing all this sort of science and literature and culture for? So what was the, what was the larger purpose to human life? And what was, what would be the end game of the apparent advances that were happening in science and in politics and economics that he and others were observing, you know, there at the end of the 19th century, there was a lot of technological change, a lot of social change happening. So where was it all going? And um, Fedorov, you know, reached this like, I think it's, it's, a fairly kind of simple and in some ways obvious conclusion, but also like incredibly shocking and radical. He said that the ultimate goal of human life and science and culture should be the eventual bodily resurrection of every human being who ever lived. And that follows along for Fedorov logically from, you know, medical science's ability to um, repair human bodies from injury, um, a physician's increasing uh, interest in sort of Uh, bringing people back from the brink of death. He saw those trend lines eventually reaching a point where we could bring everybody back from every death, no matter how long ago. And so, of course, you know, he's proceeding sort of logically and rationally from this premise and asking, okay, well, where would they all live? Well, you know, that's what we see other things going on in technology that can help us expand human life into the cosmos. So uh, Fedorov's ideas became known as Russian cosmism, this uh, this sort of ultimate common task that he said all humans were and should be engaged in, which is the eventual resurrection of everybody who ever lived and the ultimate expansion of billions and trillions of human lives into infinite empty space beyond earth. And this would be a kind of, um, this would just be a sort of interesting footnote in Russian history if he hadn't had so many followers who turned out to be very influential people like Tolstoy. Um, and uh, people like Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, who was really the first rocket scientist, uh, what he's, he's known broadly as the sort of father of Soviet rocket science and the father of the Soviet space program. He proved technically that liquid chemical rockets were possible and that they could leave Earth's gravity and go into orbit.
0: So what was Fedorov's influence on Tsiolkovsky as we can see it?
1: Sokovsky was uh, another really eccentric historical figure. He, um, he had difficulty getting an education because he was partially deaf. So when his parents sent him to Moscow to go to university at 16, you know, as you did, I guess, in 19th century Russia, um, he decided to take the money and invest in a kind of uh, a self-education. So he would go and visit the library where Fedorov worked, on an almost daily basis and engage in um, programs of study, you know, that were somewhat guided by Fedorov. So it's very much a kind of um, teacher and mentor to the, the young self-taught scientists that would later um, invent rocketry.
0: You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly, and I'm speaking with Fred Sharman. He teaches architecture and urban design at Morgan State University in Baltimore. We're discussing his book, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space. That's published by Verso. So I'd like to ask you about a very important figure in the history of science, crystallographer and material scientist, J.D. Bernal, who was a Marxist. Before we um, talk about his ideas, since he had an affinity, and I I believe had been a member of the Communist Party, with the Soviet experience, can we connect him in a lineage to the Russian cosmists?
1: I think it's important for for me to say that I'm coming at this material from less the perspective and the, the methods of a historian and more from the point of view of a person who is interested in interpreting and critiquing culture. So I was never able to find any direct link between J.D. Bernal, who, um, who visited the Soviet Union you know, several times in the 1940s and 50s and 60s as he was part of the anti-nuclear movement. But I was unable to find any sort of opportunity that Bernal would have had to have read Fedorov's or Sokovsky's writings um, directly. Um, Bernal doesn't seem to have been able to speak or write in russian and um he doesn't mention you know or cite directly the influence of either of those two earlier writers or thinkers but you know he's in an intellectual territory that is to some extent global you know all these people are reading um writers like jules verne you know who's, who's translated into into pretty much every western language at the time so thinking about you know the future and technology and outer space and um Imagining new worlds would have been something that everybody was doing at the time. And certainly, you know, Bernal would have had friends of friends of friends of friends who were connected to this kind of milieu. So um, I don't know that it's necessary to draw a direct line. I think it's more interesting to just put, you know, some of these figures and thinkers and writers next to one another and see what we can learn from the resonance between them.
0: And so why do you include Bernal in this history? How does he, present one vision of uh, life outside of the bounds of Earth.
1: Bernal's a really important bridge figure for me because um, he, like Solkovsky, was thinking about, okay, well, do we really need to go and land on other planets in order to make these new worlds? Can we create, you know, new structures in free space, in, in, in their own orbits around Earth or around the sun, that could become friendly and hospitable environments for, for a human future? And Tsiolkovsky was thinking about these sort of giant greenhouses that spun for artificial gravity that would be constructed from material mined from the moon and from the asteroids. And Bernal sort of took that idea. Again, I, I don't know that he read it directly in the original, but he sort of takes that basic idea that we could build this sort of construction, this, this you know very 19th century you know, conservatory in space. And he makes it even weirder and stranger. He thinks of it almost like a giant, uh, multi-layered, um microscopic cell with each layer of the habitat sort of doing something different to mediate between the harsh external environment and the sort of hospitable space inside and he was thinking on a much grander scale um these Bernal spheres you know as they later became to be came to be known would be um you know tens and and hundreds of miles across and they would be constructed from from stuff mined from asteroids too but they would be turned into um places that could absorb that cosmic radiation that dangerous sort of um, uh, deadly uh, version of sunlight that we get out there and and take that energy and use it for human life he was thinking more in biological and material science terms which is natural to um, to the sort of sciences he was trained in and also he was interested in um, you know I think that that Bernal was interested in, in other things that, that became later essential to, you know, the, the way that humans would care for one another in inhospitable environments, in dangerous environments. Bernal's work on space science took the form of, of pamphlets and especially a small book that he wrote in 1929 called The World, the Flesh and the Devil, An Enquiry into the Future of Three Enemies of the Rational Soul. And that's where he sort of lays out his program for these giant habitats in space. But his work as a scientist and his work as an advocate and public figure encompassed not only the anti nuclear movement later in life, but um, early in his career, he worked with the British Army to um, to think about harm reduction during World War II. So to he worked, he worked as a material science, scientists and physicist to study things like the blast radius of of bombs that might fall on London before the Blitz, so thinking about safety parameters that would be recommended for the public as they um, as they became endangered by the war, as the war was brought to um, Great Britain. He helped design the D-Day invasion um, on the beaches at Normandy and elsewhere by studying the ground and um, really analyzing the characteristics of the territory that the invading forces would encounter so that as few as possible of them would become mired in, you know, the soft ground of the beach. So he's sort of making artificial ground in space that is there to protect and nurture human life. But he's also thinking really deeply about um, about dangers that can befall humans on Earth, both the disruption, you know, of the the ground that we take for granted, in the form of a blast radius and a bomb crater, and also the kind of the study of the ground to make the, uh, the Allied invasion as safe as possible for um, the, the fighters who were, who were fighting against fascism and the Nazis.
0: Well, in contrast to J.D. Bernal and those efforts during World War II, of course, there's Werner von Braun. I wonder if you can remind us of the role that he played for the Nazis during World War II before lending his services to the US state.
1: Von Braun is a figure that in American popular culture and in the American imagination has kind of literally been sort of uh, uh, washed away of all his, of all his the sins of his past. And, um, you know, we think of Von Braun, or I remember Von Braun, you know, as a kid, as someone who would appear on the Walt Disney show, on, on, on Walt Disney's television shows that my grandparents had uh, clips of recorded on VHS tapes. And so he was literally in your living room explaining to you, you know, how Americans were going to go to the moon and to eventually Mars and build space stations and all the things that were going to be possible in the middle of the 21st century. And he's doing this in the 1950s. So he's really sort of laying out a program for the space race um, to the American public via all this popular media, via Collier's magazine and the Disney show and a bunch of books that he put out. But Von Braun's World War II career um, was literally sort of edited out of the uh, American pop culture memory by people in the army um, when they were invading um, Europe. Again, as you know, after D-Day, the Allied forces progressing deeper into Europe over the next year finally made it to Germany, and they found the sort of the top secret rocket science program that. Adolf Hitler had relied on to help turn the tide of the war. Um, right as, um, as the Nazis started to, um, to lose, he had uh, commissioned uh, these. This, he had commissioned this terror weapon, the V two rocket, um, which was the first human made object to make it out of the Earth's atmosphere and into what we now consider outer space, and that was designed by Werner von Braun. And von Braun had been supported by Albert Speer and Adolf Hitler, Albert Speer's sort of Hitler's architect and logistics expert, and very much one um, of von Braun's mentor in the Nazi party. Um, von Braun had been, along with you know, several other scientists he was working on, asked to develop this rocket. And um, Adolf Hitler hoped that uh, the sort of, the random bombardment of death from above um, would, like the Blitz early in the war, uh, demoralize England. So the V2 was, because of its capability to go into space and come back into Earth's atmosphere, was able to be launched from Axis territory in continental Europe and land on London. But the aim was terrible. This is you know, really early rocket technology. So even though ostensibly you'd be aiming for a military target or a factory, um, it could really fall anywhere in the city or the suburbs. And the the salient sort of um, uh, aspect of the V2 was that it traveled faster than sound. So in books like Thomas Pynchon's Gravity's Rainbow, we really get a sense of the sort of surreal terror that resulted from trying to go about daily life in a city like London and knowing that at any point um, the last thing you would hear would be not even the the incoming sort of whistle of the missile um, headed your way, but the explosion and it would already be too late. So von Braun was, was sort of deeply implicated in the idea that the way to win a war was to have total domination over your enemy from a territory like space. And um, the, the sort of tactics that the Nazis relied on to mass produce these weapons were also just completely horrific. More people died making the V2s at the end of World War II than were killed at the V2s' impact sites in cities like London and I think uh, also Rotterdam was impacted by the V2s. Nazi slave labor camps um, were places where over 20,000 people were worked to death to build von Braun's rockets.
0: What was von Braun's vision for outer space?
1: Well, I think... Again, we've sort of edited out that period at the beginning of his career where he was a member of the Nazi party and a member of the SS, a colonel in the SS. Um, and it's easy to sort of say, well, von Braun came to the United States and, and he converted to evangelical Christianity and he embraced the American way of life. And well, he did what he had to do when he worked um, to make rockets in Nazi Germany, because this was his only opportunity to you know, be a rocket scientist, was to make weapons for um, the Third Reich. But when you examine von Braun's career uh, with the U.S. military, the precursor agencies to NASA were mostly military during the first part of the Cold War and the space race. He's applying not just the same sort of scientific lessons he learned about ballistics and fuel ratios and aerodynamics. He's also applying the kind of ideology and methodology of the terror weapon. And he's using the fear of the terror weapon to make an argument for his own goals, which is to go to Mars and to build a space station. When he's pitching his ideas about space stations and Mars and you know, as, as popular culture had it at the time, the conquest of space, he's pitching them to the US military in explicitly military terms. He's saying that they should make sure that the American government was the first nation to build a space station because the space station could immediately be turned into a weapons platform a place where from orbit um, this now nuclear-capable state could threaten implicitly or explicitly to bomb any city or any piece of territory at any time. So it's it's the same logic of the V-2. It's the same terrible logic of the terror weapon that made people in London so sort of surreally afraid at the end of World War II, now taken to a global scale. Um, instead of a rocket that could fall in on your apartment building in London at any time. We have an orbital nuclear weapons platform that could you know, implicitly destroy Moscow.
0: Well, and what you've just described with the story of Werner von Braun, both in Germany, Nazi Germany, and then in the United States, and also what you mentioned earlier with J.D. Bernal and his background, that although there are wide-ranging visions about space exploration that can be attributed to all sorts of thinkers, including, as you say, a librarian in Moscow in the late 19th century, that so much of space exploration has been connected to the military and really can't be separated out from it.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. There's a sort of ambiguous or ambivalent relationship between um, space science and sort of global militarization that starts all the way back, you know, with the V2, to, to create an intercontinental ballistic missile, you know, which is the, the great melding of these two top secret science projects from World War II, the, the, the rocket, you know, from Von Braun and the <laughs> nuclear warhead created by the Manhattan Project around the same time in the United States, um, the intercontinental nuclear ballistic missile that, that comes out of the merger of those two technologies is really a spaceship. I mean, there's there's no other way to describe it. It relies on going out into space and coming back into Earth's atmosphere. And it goes way, way higher than, you know, most of the places that humans occupy in space right now are at. The International Space Station is at, like, 250 miles up on average. The intercontinental ballistic missiles go thousands and thousands of miles up and then back down. But they're not considered outer space weapons, either in popular culture or in some of the treaty documents that were drawn up during the Cold War to to, um, to really mitigate the dangers of uh, national competition that might get deadly um, in the space race. The Outer Space Treaty, which was ratified, it was which was presented by the UN and, and ratified by um, the United States and the Soviet Union and several other countries starting in 1967, specifies that no weapons of mass destruction can be used or tested in space that um, that most military activity is forbidden in space and that uh, claims to national sovereignty over territory are also against international law so even though the United States space program was the first to reach the moon and they planted you know a, an American flag there um, at the landing site of Apollo 11, that could not be considered an implicit or explicit claim on lunar territory on the part of the Americans, because international law forbade it. And indeed, there was a lot of controversy over, you know, should we should we actually plant that American flag? You know, would that send the wrong message? So there's this back and forth, you know, kind of uh, kind of sometimes idealistic, sometimes real politic uh, set of negotiations, both you know, in legal documents and in you know our broad way of thinking about what space is for and how space is used.
0: This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today, I'm speaking with the author of Space Forces, a critical history of life and outer space. Fred Sharman teaches architecture and urban design at Morgan State University, that's in Baltimore. His other book is titled Space Settlements and he's the co-founder of the working group on adaptive systems. So Fred, one thing that you mentioned earlier is the kind of ways that science fiction has shaped the range of possibilities that people might consider when thinking about space. And you mentioned science fiction or fantasy writer Jules Verne, uh, very popular in the late 19th, early 20th century uh, with many books that were bestsellers around the world. And you argue, in uh, Space Forces that in many ways the line between science fiction and space science is not easily delineated. I wonder if you could talk about that and, and relate it. We were just talking about Werner von Braun. He, like a number of the characters we encounter in Space Forces, turned out to write his own brand of science fiction
1: you know, in the, in the research and reading that I've been doing over the past 10 years, I I find increasingly, you know, increasingly less use for those distinctions between space science and science fiction. And, you know, more broadly between those disciplines or those areas of study and and my own kind of uh, background in the spatial practices of architecture and urban design, right? It's all about thinking about what are the spaces we make for the future and, and, what's the nature of those spaces and who is invited into them. Um, And whether you're speculating about what happens, you know, next year, will we build a new building across the street or what happens in the next century? You know, will we go and live on Mars? And I think when you, when you follow the careers of, of people who work in space science, particularly people who want to draw and build these broad audiences like Von Braun, you find that they pretty seamlessly go back and forth between writing fiction and writing um, speculations about what's possible according to fact. And von Braun wrote this um, uh, really, actually, a pretty unreadable science fiction novel starting in 1948. Uh, he first published it in German and later in English, called *The Mars Project*, where he used a kind of imaginary 21st century and late 20th century to think about what might be the future of a human and a specifically American existence in space. So in his future scenario, the United States follows what later became to be known as the von Braun paradigm that, you know, first we would build um, something like a reusable rocket, which became the space shuttle, and that we would use that to be able to build a space station, um, which of course we have now. But in von Braun's timeline, That space station again becomes a weapons platform and in his future history, it's the Americans that win World War III because of this new access to space and space technology that they've created. So now there's there's this sort of American-led international community that discovers life on Mars. They discover evidence of cities on Mars. And so they want to lead an expedition there. And, and von Braun's, you know, again, von Braun's planetary imagination, the only way he's able to frame it is in terms of conquest. So it's an armed uh, expedition on the part of what he literally calls the Space Force to Mars from the United States Space Station. Something like 100 men, um, and they are all men in von Braun's future, um, bringing weapons and, and going and uh, and landing on Mars and finding an older civilization than Earth's. Uh, Mars is, is often the place for a kind of uh, way that the human cultures can imagine their own futures in science fiction. Mars is you know, further out from the sun. It's obviously a desert planet. So the idea is maybe that it's Older, maybe the the, any civilization that lives there has used up all their resources and all their water. This is, you know, what some people were speculating um, about the the canals that they were imagining or seeing or imagining they were seeing on Mars. Um, People like Percival Lowell, that maybe these were engineering works that a dying culture had created to get the last sort of water out of their ecosystem. So in von Braun's Mars, the the wiser older civilization that's there, you know, gives some sort of sage advice to uh, to the space force expedition. the the leader of Mars is literally called the Elon in von Braun's 1948 book. The leader of Mars says to the to the leaders of the human expedition, the American expedition, that yes, you know, cultures have to go through necessary periods of war and pain and slavery to get to to get to space, to get to a future where everything turns out okay, and and I think this is again a place where we find that that ideas about conflict are necessary to von Braun's planetary imagination and his ability to think about a human future in space. Um, other people like Alexander Bogdanov have used Mars to imagine, you know, very different kinds of of human futures. Alexander Bogdanov was. Another person who was a scientist and a physician, but also somebody who was invested in connecting to popular audiences with his ideas about culture by using science fiction. So his Mars, and and Bogdanov is uh, is also a cosmist writing, you know, around the same time as Bernal, a little bit earlier, uh, a Russian cosmist, and he's writing about you know possible communist technological futures on Mars. So it, this space is always, is always often, you know, a place where, um, where people with political and social agendas can tell their stories in ways that, uh, you know, broad audiences can connect with more viscerally than polemically.
0: Well, how did space exploration in the 1960s and 1970s change science fiction?
1: That's a good question. Um. For a long time in in the nineteen forties and fifties, you know the kind of I'd say the primary mode of science fiction in uh, the United States and even in uh, in then Soviet Russia was a sort of hard SF mode. Um, so there was this sort of desire to to uh, demonstrate that the scenarios in your story were plausible. So and this is this is part of a lineage that comes all the way from Jules Verne, where you have characters. Investing a lot of time and a lot of pages describing, you know, here's how the motor works Here's how the mixture of gases and the hot air balloon functions to keep it aloft for 180 days Here's how, you know, we're able to um, To grow food or produce um, air, you know, once we get to space That idea of plausibility uh, Is at the forefront because you want to back up your sort of more radical speculations with hard science and I think into the 60s and 70s, things start to get stranger. Um, Arthur C. Clarke is is one person who I'm really interested in in this regard. And he's another sort of bridge person between science and science fiction because he's a science fiction author, but he's also a frequent advisor to scientific societies. He's you know, popularly considered the inventor of the communication satellite in geosynchronous orbit, one of the first to propose that. And the idea of the space elevator, that we could sort of hang a, a very strong cord from a geosynchronous orbit and have, you know, pretty easy, pretty cost-effective transportation up and down from Earth to space. So Arthur Clarke, you know, and he was a technical advisor on, on films and books and things like that, but he's also somebody who's really invested in the strange and the weird, you know, his, his essential um, sort of ideas that drive his scientific imagination are mysterious artifacts like the monolith on 2001 that seem beyond any plausible scientific explanation right a science that has gone so far into the future that it becomes you know and to paraphrase one of his popular formulations indistinguishable from magic so once you get into the 60s and 70s this kind of strangeness starts to blend into the rationality of the science fiction imagination
0: well the 1960s and 70s were of course marked by great social unrest not simply in the united states but around the world countries that had been had been colonies of larger empires breaking free and i wanted to ask you how an ethos of anti-colonialism shaped some visions of space which in earlier virgin space was sort of a place to colonize and as you write even the term space colony is used without often noting what the term implies, and a place of extraction. So during that time, what did contrary visions look like that were anti-colonial and anti-extractivist?
1: I, this is another another aspect of these stories that, that goes back into the 19th century. Um, Mars, again, is a place where, um, where human fears about the future start to materialize. And H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, Mars is the launching point for a group of technically advanced invaders that want to essentially come and colonize Earth. So there's the beginning of a kind of colonial anxiety that you can trace where um, dominant cultures in the West start to worry, well, wow, if we have been able to, um, to use technology to extend our reach and our economic and political influence all across the globe, but the universe is bigger than the globe so what if somebody someday somewhere out there does the same thing to us so it's not really hard to the subtext almost becomes text is you know, starting with h g wells and again it's localized in possible futures projected onto onto mars and you know once we find out there's probably almost no life on mars and there's probably almost no other life in the rest of the solar system we push that further out into interstellar space and we imagine aliens from other solar systems coming back to do to us what we've done to others. And again, in the 60s, you find, um, I think, utopian threads that take that anxiety and turn it back on itself in some ways. I'm really interested in parallel with Arthur C. Clarke to sort of bring in the work of the Strugatsky brothers who were science fiction writers working in the Soviet Union beginning in, beginning in the 1950s and into the 60s and 70s and 80s, pretty much um, contemporaries with Clark. And they st- also started out in this sort of hard sci-fi mode. But as they developed their science fictional universe, they, uh, they, they introduced this principle of non-interference into the human future out in the cosmos. So there's an understanding in the work of the Strugatsky brothers, in particular, their, their kind of noon universe timeline, which is really great. I highly recommend people seek that out. There's an understanding that, well, there's going to be difference that humans encounter once they leave the solar system. There's going to be not only cultures that are more advanced or less advanced, whatever that means, but cultures that are fundamentally different than ours. And that there's not just one timeline for the development of a civilizational future, like people were hoping was the case or afraid there was the case in the 19th and early 20th century. There's no sort of one end state or one story that a species, a tool using intelligent species follows. You can encounter all kinds of stuff out there. So the best sort of general rule is to not mess with anybody you find. Don't necessarily hide from them, but don't necessarily come in and colonize them, right? Or attempt to civilize them, or attempt to take their stuff. So there's this principle of non interference that shows up in the Strugatskys even a few years before um, you know, the, the prime directive that we see showing up in the TV show Star Trek in the 1960s in the United States. So, you know, again, there's not really, we don't need to say that Gene Roddenberry was reading the Strugatsky's to uh, independently invent this principle of non-interference at the Prime Directive in this this human future in space that values difference, not hierarchy. But we can say that there were ideas like this in the air, And there were certainly, that was certainly the case, you know, during these later phases of the Cold War, um, where the interference of empires into Territories like Vietnam or Afghanistan was becoming sort of something that, that public constituents were sick of. It was, it was something that was, that was getting a lot of pushback. So ideas about technological non-interference uh, alongside expansion and the, the value that difference might have, um, aside from any ideas about hierarchy, are really interesting to trace in science fiction through this time.
0: I'm speaking with Fred Sharman about his book, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Tell us about Princeton physicist Gerard O'Neill. What was his vision and his influence, including on the counterculture?
1: Gerard O'Neill was, as you say, a physicist teaching at Princeton in the 1960s and into the 70s and he was he was an avid fan of science fiction he was a Star Trek fan he was reading Solkovsky. he was reading JD Bernal um, and he began to realize as somebody who you know is is in the heart of what we might call you know the techno-industrial complex at the time an ivy league university teaching a, a stem you know uh, discipline he began to see that during this turbulent period in Western cultural history, that technology and engineering and physics was kind of getting a bad reputation. That the participation of big science in, you know, the activities of empire and in global war uh, was not something you know that could escape critique anymore. And he saw this literally, you know, on his university campus as protests, you know, were tar- targeting physics students and engineering students and saying like, "Hey, you're complicit in." And atrocities, you know, the science that you are developing is being used to make napalm, is being used to make weapons of mass destruction and terror that are being brought to the edges of empire to engage in colonial militaristic atrocities. And he wanted to give his students a chance to, um, as he put it, work for the benefit of all humanity. So he introduced special topics into his into his freshman class where um, groups of, you know, what he called the sort of best and brightest, and we can talk about that, um, were able to work on uh, important research that might uh, create new and better human futures. And of course, as a science fiction fan, he was really interested in going to space. So uh, one of the projects that came out of his work with students in in the late 1960s was a sort of a program of activities that would make Bernal's kind of speculation about these giant spheres in space would make them more technically feasible. He started to inventory, you know, what, what sort of material could we actually get from the moon and from the asteroids? What would, you know, why would we build these cities in space in the first place? What would the people who live there be engaged with? What would they be doing? Why would they go there and how, what would their daily work be? Um, well, the overall sort of, um, uh, project that he, came up with, first with the students and then working with NASA and other people into the 1970s and even into the 80s, was for the production of these giant spinning, you know, not not in free fall but spinning for artificial gravity, tens of miles wide, um, toruses. So, you know, like bicycle wheels, spheres and cylinders in space. And these would be like, you know, in Bernal's vision, places where the production of artificial ground would, enable the construction of complete new worlds on the interior you know sort of custom designed and custom constructed to different kinds of human life and he pictured all kinds of different subcultures living inside different space habitats so you'd have a city for the hippies over here and you know a city for the technocrats over here and there would never be that kind of conflict between cultures that he was seeing on college campuses in the 1960s if you just give everybody their own little pocket world and this was you know again this is something that that was invested in to some degree by the United States government NASA commissioned studies from Bernal and conferences in which he he got together with architects and landscape architects and planners and people involved in agricultural science and anthropology and all these other disciplines to really start to hammer out you know what would be necessary to 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 figure out to actually make these worlds real and this was during the during the 70s at least you know part of what A lot of people hoped would be the long-term project for nasa after apollo after we've achieved this milestone of landing a human on the moon what would be the sort of next big goal well it would be permanent human inhabitation again you know probably permanent american human inhabitation um, out in outer space
0: well i think it would be very hard for most people to have avoided all the fanfare around Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos' Blue Origin and Elon Musk's SpaceX, this idea of private space travel by uh, the super rich. How would you characterize that impulse? How would you situate uh, the Bezos's and Musk's vision of space in terms of the longer lineages that you have traced over the last 150 years?
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, it's it's fascinating to see the almost daily news stories about um, the latest billionaires in space. 2021 was sort of the year of the billionaire in space. We saw at least four by my last count um, go up above the atmosphere. But I think that is, you know, a set of stunts maybe that, that captures the headline is we should regard that as a little bit of a distraction if we're really paying attention to some of the bigger pictures involved. Because beyond, you know... Beyond a kind of uh, desire to create space tourism or, um, you know, publicity heavy events like sending, you know, Captain Kirk, William Shatner to space like Jeff Bezos, Blue Origin launch did um, back last fall. Beyond that, both of these two, you know, I think the two main figures are, of course, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos both of these two individuals have a long-term agenda and they're deeply connected to some of these older stories. Um, Elon Musk's long-term plan is to go and create a multi-planetary future for humans. Um, And in order to do that, he wants to establish a city on Mars. And Elon's sort of step-by-step um, itinerary is a lot like the Wernher von Braun paradigm, you know, not that Elon Musk is a secret Nazi or anything like that. It's just that Elon fears human futures that are embedded in conflict or danger. And, and he sees, you know, conflict or danger as an inevitable part of a long-term human future. And so he sees travel to Mars as a kind of backup plan for the dangers that are associated with nuclear war or asteroid impact, or, you know, disease or technology run out of control. And, um, you know, Musk has, I think Musk has the, uh, a Von Braun conference room, you know, in SpaceX headquarters. Uh, there's really a, a direct kind of lionization of Von Braun the figure and also his sort of agenda. And Jeff Bezos, on the other hand, is literally a follower of um, Gerard O'Neill's ideas. He was a student at Princeton in the 19. 19- 90s, and um, and while not, you know, apparently attending any of O'Neill's classes, was a sort of member of the campus um, Gerard O'Neill Space Settlement fan club, and so they would go to all of O'Neill's public lectures, and um, Bezos' interest in O'Neill's idea goes back to his time as a high school student, really. His valedictorian speech was a reiteration, basically, of O'Neill's paradigm for future living in space, for millions of people living in orbit not on Mars necessarily or on the moon, but in these free-floating cities, these landscapes can, created from scratch. So, and that really you know, is it, translated right into the, the mission statement, if you like, of Jeff Bezos' space launch company, Blue Origin, which is um, creating a future where m- millions of people are living and working in space. And they later added to benefit Earth to the end of that, um, that goal. Um, which I think is also telling. So there are direct connections, you know in the in the the deeper lineages and stories um, about how and why, you know we, how and why some of us want to go and live in space that are maybe more interesting and more worth following and paying attention to than Captain Kirk, you know, catching a ride on Blue Origin's uh, new Shepard rocket.
0: Fred Sharman, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks so much, Sasha.
0: I've been speaking with Fred Sharman about his book, Space Forces, A Critical History of Life in Outer Space. If you go to againstthegrain.org, you'll find a link to that book, which is published by Verso. He's the co-founder of the working group on adaptive systems and teaches architecture and urban design at Morgan State University in Baltimore. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening and please tune in again next time.